God's grace, peace, mercy be with you on this uh, 22nd Sunday, I think, after Pentecost, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Mercy read uh, our uh, lectionary reading today from Second Thessalonians, but I want to read to you the whole letter. Uh, it's not very long. It only takes a few minutes. Uh, and I'm going to use uh, Beck's translation from the Greek. Uh, I think this is a, a good one, not that the ones that you have in your service folders are any uh, uh, much different, but uh, uh, I don't know. Beck had a way of translating the Greek, a, a very uh, a fresh and inspiring uh, way of, of uh, translating uh, these texts. And uh, he devoted his whole life to it. The Missouri Synod tried to get this Beck translation to be the approved Bible uh, many years ago, but it didn't didn't quite work out that way. But uh, I was fortunate to find a copy here. They're a little hard to find. Um, so here's how the whole second letter to the Thessalonians goes. You can follow along in your pew Bible if you want, uh, although that's the new King James Version. So you're going to notice as I'm reading along, it's not going to exactly line up, but but... You can get there. Okay, so the, his letter starts out this way. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessing to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts out all his letters that way. We always have to thank God for you, my fellow Christians. It is the right thing to do because your faith is growing wonderfully. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So much so that we're boasting about you in God's church. In God's churches, how you endure and trust no matter how much you're persecuted and made to suffer. This boasting is not an arrogant boasting. I think you can realize, you know, you know that already. But it's more of a uh, can't wait to share the news to other churches about you. This kind of thing. It shows how God judges righteously. He means to make you worthy of his kingdom for which you are suffering. It really is just for God to pay back with suffering those who make you suffer and to give relief to you who suffer and to us when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a blaze of fire to take vengeance on those who don't know God and on those who will not obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. Pretty harsh-sounding, isn't it? See, there are consequences for not, uh, for not listening to God's word, for not obeying. Uh, it's not just that people are just going to, oh, I don't believe. And it's, uh, <laughs> there are consequences. They will be punished by being taken away from the Lord and from the glory of his power to be destroyed eternally when he comes on that day to be glorified in his holy people and admired by all who believed. You did believe the truth we told you. With this in mind, we're always praying for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling and by his power accomplish every good thing you decide to do and every work of faith so as to glorify the name of our Lord Jesus among you and you and him according to the love of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ is coming and will be gathered to meet him. But we ask you, fellow Christians, not to lose your head so quickly or get alarmed either by a spirit message or by any word or letter that seemed to come from us, saying, the day of the Lord has already come. 
See, apparently uh, there was some uh, rumors going around or some false teachings going around, uh, maybe some, uh, uh, what do you call, fraudulent letters going around, appearing to be from Paul and his friends. Paul is trying to say, no, don't listen to them. It's not true. Don't let anybody deceive you anyway. First, there must be a revolt. And the man of sin must be revealed to destruction, who opposes and sets himself above anyone who is called God or anything we worship, is in God's temple and proclaims he is God. Now, what's interesting here is Paul is not referring to one man in particular. He's referring to uh, any person that has the spirit of uh, deception. So any false teachers, anyone who would different than what Paul and the apostles are teaching because they have the spirit of the devil behind them. Don't you remember I told you this when I was still with you? And now you know what's holding him back so that he will be revealed when his time comes. This wicked thing is already working secretly, but only till he holding it back gets out of the way. And again, Paul doesn't say by name who this person who is holding the, the evil man back is. Uh, but if you look at the whole, if you look at all of Paul's letters together, well, he means God. God is restraining the work of the devil to a point until the last day. Then the wicked one will be revealed and the Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and wipe him out by coming and showing himself coming of this wicked one is the work of the devil who uses every kind of false power miracle and wonder and every wicked way to deceive those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and be saved that is why god sends them a power to deceive them so they will believe the lie and all will be condemned who did not believe the truth but delighted in wrong that's pretty interesting isn't it that God will send power to deceive those who do not believe so they will believe the lie? Isn't it the case that, oh, we pray for those who don't believe that, that by their last breath they will finally come to faith? Well, yes, we do do that. And it is true that someone could come to faith at the last minute. But it's also true that God knows who's not going to believe over to, just gives them over to their sin. They are beyond hope. But we always have to thank God for you, my fellow Christians, who the Lord loves. Because in the beginning, God chose you to be made holy by the Spirit, to believe the truth, and so to be saved. For this purpose, He called you by the good news we tell. He wants you to have the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stand then, fellow Christians. And cling to the instructions we gave you when we spoke to you or wrote to you. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his love gave us an everlasting comfort and a good hope, inwardly comfort do and say everything that is good. Finally, my fellow Christians, pray for us that the Lord's word will run well and win glory as it did among you and will be rescued from wrong-minded and wicked people. Not everybody has faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and protect you against the evil one. We are certain in the Lord you are doing and will be doing what we order you to do. And may the Lord lead you to realize how God loves you and how patiently Christ suffered.
I wrote down some points about that last line, how patiently Christ suffered. It may be a little different in some of your other translations, the NIV, the ESV, and, and, and such, but I had to look this up. Beck looked at the word patience in the Greek, and it has the undertone of enduring suffering. So he went ahead and translated that, how God loves you and how patiently Christ suffered for you. I've got a few points I want to share with you about that. <clears throat> First, we've got to talk about the cross. The word cross appears dozens of times in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the first time the word cross appears is in Matthew, when Jesus says to his disciples, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That's the first time cross is mentioned in the Gospels. Jesus tells his 12 closest followers at that time that each one of them will need to take up his cross before he says anything about his death on a cross. Now, what do you think these guys are thinking at that time? They have no frame of reference to what he's talking about or what he could mean by this. All they know, all the disciples know about a cross at that time is that it's something you avoid. It's not something you aspire to. It's connected to punishment, shame, and you know, they're familiar with its practice in the Roman Empire. So, that's all they know about cross. And yet, this is, this is exactly what Jesus calls them to carry. So, if Jesus begins teaching people about the cross as something we all must carry, before he, he even talks about it being an instrument of his death, then it follows that any discussion of Jesus' cross and suffering and death must include the cross in the life of followers such as you and me. So what does that look like? Well, for the original hearers of these Gospels and these letters from Paul in Judea and elsewhere in the Roman Empire, you know, a lot of people would have witnessed firsthand this kind of punishment, the crucifixion. It was considered worse than being burned at the stake or burned in a fire or having your head chopped off. To publicly humiliate and shame the condemned was the goal of the Roman Empire. They could have simply put criminals to death by slicing the throat or running through with the sword. But that they didn't operate that way. Crucifixion took maximum effort with whipping and scourging and beating ahead of time before the accused was even nailed to the thing. The condemned was made to carry his crossbeam through the streets of their own town in order, in order so that you know, the suffering would be maximized. They would be spat on, have rotten food thrown at them, kicked, slapped, mocked, what have you, in order to prove and show that challenging the empire was not something you want to do. It's futile. A crucifixion was always outside the city, on a public road, so that everybody coming and going could see it. And they would be able to spread the news to other towns, also creating maximum effect. 
Now, I won't go into all the gory, t- gory details of how a crucifixion affects the human body. Perhaps I'll save that for Good Friday. Nevertheless, to people who saw all that, and to those who've heard about it, Jesus says, take up your cross. See, Jesus connects his rejection, his suffering, and death with the cross-carrying that's expected of every one of us. He says this to the crowds, no less, not just to his disciples. If anyone would come after me, anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You've heard those words many times. Jesus told them and us that we will be put into circumstances where we will suffer shame because we are carrying a cross. And not only that, it's daily. It's not just a one-time event. Every day, the follower of Jesus will endure the cross. Now, do you know who the first follower of Jesus to carry his cross was? Any guesses? Not Stephen. Before that. Who, who was uh, compelled to carry a cross? No, not Paul. Not Barabbas. Who was that man who just happened to be there? Well, he didn't just happen to be there. He was following Jesus. Yeah, Simon of Cyrene. He and his sons are mentioned by name. That's significant, folks. Simon of Cyrene and his two sons are mentioned by name. There's a reason for that, because the original hearers of Mark uh, knew them. They were members of the community. They were believers. They were part of the community. Now, Cyrene, he was ordered to carry the Jesus' crossbeam. Nevertheless, he's the first of the anyone's who would follow after to carry his cross. He didn't ask for it. It was unexpected. He didn't wake up that morning with the goal of carrying Jesus' cross or seeking to get his name written in history. He was simply going about his life, literally following Jesus on a road. And from there on, you can read in Acts and in all of Paul's letters, the cross is embodied in the actions of the believers, the church, the people of God, the apostles, the teachers, the women who cared for widows, who fed and clothed the needy, the evangelists, the preachers. The cross is visible in their lives of service to one another. As the word goes out through Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and anyone else who they found who they would gather to teach this stuff, to teach the people about what God has done. You know, when I was reading this second letter, and Paul was talking about the things that we told you, you know, Paul didn't have a complete Bible. Silas and Timothy and all the others that they found who could teach, they didn't have complete scriptures, even scrolls. They were told what what Jesus had done, and those people then told others, who told others, who told others. You know how it went. And these people, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they were regularly beaten and thrown into prison, slandered. 
Those who they gathered to teach and spread the news, some of them were fed to lions and amphitheaters. Some of them were even crucified. Paul makes this connection between his suffering, his friend's suffering, and the people's suffering to whom he's writing to. He connects their suffering and Jesus' suffering. Their lives take the shape of the suffering and death of Jesus so that the cross is made more clear with their suffering. But this isn't just a concept. We are crucified with Christ in baptism. Isn't that what we confess? Isn't that what I say up here when I baptize someone? We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's from Romans chapter 6. But just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we too, after having been baptized into Christ, now rises as a person who lives a life that is free from being enslaved by sin. We still have sin after baptism, and we still do and say terrible things that hurt others and ourselves and dishonor God. But we're not held captive to that anymore. Sin doesn't have the final word. It doesn't rule our lives. Christ now rules us and makes us instrument of righteousness, <laughs> instruments of righteousness. Try saying that four times fast. He makes us instruments of righteousness for the good of others and to glorify Him. This shows us that the crucifixion crucifixion of Jesus is an act of love. Love on God's part for you and me. So we carry on. We carry on, not, not worrying so much about what Jesus would do today, but rather what he's done for us. This is where we meet Jesus. Think love. Think unity. Think humility. Think others surpass you. Think the needs of others over your own. Think this way, Paul urges, and the hinge swings us to Jesus. Because, after all, Jesus is the one. He is God who humbled himself, didn't consider himself to be greater than anyone, taking the form of a slave, humiliated himself, carried his cross in shame, hung on a cross, and died an utterly vile death on it, all for the joy of saving you from the punishment and death of sin. Yet we were also buried with him in baptism in order that just as he was raised from the dead, we too might walk in a new way of life. We are in Christ, and He is in us. But don't misunderstand me, okay? Following Jesus and carrying our cross doesn't mean life is a race to the bottom. The person who's best at carrying their cross is not the one who's most beaten, most abused, most persecuted, or suffering some terrible illness more than someone else, or involved in a terrible accident or something. There are times when we bring that on ourselves. 
After all, Jesus, the one who calls us to follow and take up our cross, is also the one who daily and richly supplies us with all that we need to support this body and life. We are freed from from our self-serving, power-hungry, twisted self-absorption and freed to live by the power of the one who has overcome the world to serve others. And that all happens in the midst of our suffering. At the same time, suffering goes on. Interesting, then, that we work so hard to avoid suffering. We have the power in this country to vote people into government who believe and think along our lines and make our lives less cross-like. We fight to keep the burdens away that would make living our lives less faithfully. Nothing wrong with that, I guess. It's just that, well, have we really ever considered that we might actually be called to suffer as the church? Consider how our brothers and sisters in other parts of the globe are called to suffer as the church. If page after page of Paul's letters and the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the other writers if those all connect the life of followers of Jesus to closely with his suffering, why do we invest so much time and energy and resources to avoid it? To make it easier to be the church? I don't know. It's just something to think about. Our prayer remains the same nonetheless. That by the Spirit, through daily repentance, the old Adam be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires. And that a new person would daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. That's just not for the original hearers of this word. That's just not for the disciples. That's just not for a Paul. That's just for you and me and all people who would hear and believe. Get that word out. If people aren't going to come to church at your invitation to hear it, I don't know, they might come to your home for a meal and hear it. You can share the word of God then with them. It's your court, your castle. If they don't like it, so be it. They may never come back, but you shake off the dust and invite someone else. I'm going to finish the letter. Now we order you, fellow Christians, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from any Christian who refuses to live and work as we instructed you. Interesting that Paul would say, we order you, right? But you know, the word of God, the apostolic teachings are not just, you know, we really recommend that you follow God and live a righteous life. It's not like that. You know, when you're a Christian, you assent to God's word. You say, you know, Lord, yeah, I will obey you. I will do what you say. It's not a popular thing today to uh, uh, assent to anyone or follow or uh, uh, obey anyone or anything. Uh, we still recognize that we teach our kids to obey the authorities of the land, the police and that kind of thing. But man, when it comes to God, even your faithful Christians have a hard time with that, which is what Paul is saying here. Uh, Keep away from any Christian 
He's not saying unbeliever here. Keep away from any Christian who refuses to live and work as we instructed you. You know how you should imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you and took no free meals from anyone but worked hard and struggled day and night in order not to burden any of you. Not as though we didn't have a right to get support. No, we wanted to give you an example to imitate. And while we were with you, we gave you the order. If anyone doesn't want to work, he shouldn't eat. We hear that some of you are living a lazy life, not doing any work but being busybodies. Such people we order and encourage by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and eat their own bread. And you, fellow Christians, don't get tired of doing good. Look, if anyone will not listen to what we say in this letter, mark him and don't have anything to do with him. And so he will feel ashamed. Don't treat him like an enemy, but warn him like a brother. See, this is churchly apostolic discipline. Discipline in love. Don't treat people like an enemy. Don't treat people who won't, will not obey, refuse to obey, and make trouble in the church. Don't treat them like an enemy, but warn them like a brother. Uh, do something that will make, the, you know, make them feel ashamed. And, you know, this is something that we don't like to do in our modern American society is make people feel ashamed because we feel that that hurts their feelings. And then they might not ever come back or they won't, they won't be part of the family anymore, which is true. Uh, but in a Christian apostolic way, that is meant to turn the heart of the brother or sister and make them, help them realize that they are following the wrong way and will want to come back to God. Anyways, <clears throat> Paul finishes this letter in this way. The Lord of peace always give you peace in every way. The Lord be with you all. I'm writing this greeting with, any, with my own, that is, Paul's hand. By this you can recognize every letter. This is my handwriting. The undeserved love of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.